Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Alan Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm a writer with an interest in the internet. We talk to guests to help us understand the relationship we have with our bodies when it comes to sex and intimacy. It's a whole new kind of sex education for your owl... Careful. ...pleasure. (laughs) In this episode of The Pleasure Podcast, we speak to the best-selling author, Sarah Perry. Her novels, After Me Comes the Flood, The Essex Serpent and Melmoth, have made her into a household name. She's been on the Costa Novel Award shortlist, won Waterstones Book of the Year, the British Book Award for Fiction, and the British Book Award for Book of the Year. Her writing has been compared to Dickens, Bram Stoker, and Kafka. But Sarah's writing refuses to follow obvious rules and conventions of genre, and the gothic spirit of her work is accompanied by sharp originality. The transgressive result has captured the world's imagination. Today, we're talking about another form of transgression on the page, erotic fiction, and how literature can access our most intimate imagination. You were raised in a strict Baptist household where the idea of boyfriends or sexual partners or even pop culture was pretty removed. What was really interesting that was because there was no television, I wasn't allowed to go to the cinema, all of this stuff. My whole emotional and sexual education had to be through literature. And my parents didn't restrict my access to literature at all. So my dad gave me Tess of the D'Urbervilles when I was 10, which is actually in some ways quite an erotic and transgressive book. So yeah, literature was kind of my main way of exploring these things. And I knew where my sisters kept their Jilly Coopers under the bed. (laughs) And I was extremely precocious. So I was reading Jilly Cooper at the age of like nine or something. um, And I'm sure it contributed to a general feeling of being completely unshockable because banning kids from television and films is fine but what is contained in libraries is every bit as explicit and instructive and transgressive as what you might see on tv if not worse and your imagination is such fertile ground that you can go even further in your mind than you might find it within the narrow script of what you're watching if you're watching porn if you're watching a sex scene or something like that you are being given a scripted environment aren't you everything is being shown the visuals as well as the words etc absolutely if you're reading something it's, it's so much more felt i completely agree and i do you know i've been giving a lot of thought to the difference between pornography either written pornography or visual pornography and eroticism in literature and i think one of the differences is that pornography is designed to titillate that's what it does it does the job it's a mechanism it kind of sorts it out it's that's what it's for it's quite fast it is really quick and also you cannot be surprised by it because you have elected to take part in it to read Anais Nin or to watch something on the internet you know whatever it is you've chosen to do but when it's embedded in story two things happen firstly you're emotionally engaged so you're taking part in the build-up in the same way that you would do if you were subject to a seduction by somebody and then you are taken by surprise 
So some of the great kind of erotic moments in literature, I think, are the ones where you're you're within it and you're already feeling exasperated by this person. Mm. And um, but also you want to carry on reading and you're not quite sure why. And it's kind of replicating these interpersonal things that tend to end up with sexual intimacy. So then when it arrives on the page, you're often kind of slightly blindsided and you feel it in a much more kind of embodied way. I definitely felt that reading The Essex Serpent where um, I was reading it in the bus and <laughs> I find it's the only place I can get reading down at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and there's this very sexy scene that happens between your two protagonists, Will and Cora, which completely took me by surprise. I had no idea that it was going there. And I was so turned on that, <laughs> that I felt... Actually, the fact that I knew you, I felt like I'd got a weird insight into you. Yeah, Isn't it strange? Yeah. It felt like you had come in there and turned me on. Yes. <laughs> like, Sarah, get out, my, get out of my room. Do you mind if I read an extract? No, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> it seemed to him that to keep apart from her now would be obscene. How could it be possible to seek out each fold and turn of her mind and not grow familiar with the particular patina of her skin, the scent and taste of it? Not to touch her now would be to breach a natural law. Back she lay against the soft green stare in the thickening dusk and fixed her eyes on his, unsurprised, daring him. He raised her shirt and there, in the split between the black cloth of her clothes, he found her soft belly, very white, marked with the silver lines her son had made. He kissed it once and could not stop and she rolled against him in delight. The sun slid down, the forest closed about them. The copper on the pillars of the trees turned to verdigris. The gilded temple was gone, and in its place there was the scent of leaf mould and long grass dying, and windfall apples splitting on the path. She met his gaze then, levelly as she always had, and felt herself go rushing to meet him like a river in spate. Please, she said, pulling at her skirt, please, and he heard it like a command. He found her easily, and his hand slipped and moved in her, and her bright head drooped, and she was silent. He showed her his hand, and how she gleamed there. He put a forefinger to his mouth and hers, and they had an equal share. It's so sexy. Wow. <laughs> you had the giggles. So you, I was just watching you whilst you did that. Sarah it's Perry really, is blushing. Really long, I have gone for bright red. It's a really long time since I've read or thought about it. Yeah. And it is it's a lot sexier than I remembered. <laughs> I think if I if I read that in a book, I'd have to go and have a lie down. I'm really proud of that actually. I really am. And um the book I'm working on now will necessarily have sex scenes in it and it's it's really interesting to me to read that to hear that read and to think about what works and why it works. And opinions obviously will differ vastly on what makes erotic writing successful or not but for me the two things are feeling and specificity so the reason I after a distance of three years since I wrote it four years since I wrote it feel that the, the emotion is really strong because you've spent 300 pages watching these two people kind of battle and become friends and develop this kind of very intimate relationship but also Will is married and he's very happily married and he really adores his wife. So you're constantly aware that whatever can happen is by a kind of meta narrative of morality and by his own love for his wife cannot be right. But also at the same time, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And it's this kind of question of situational ethics, I guess, that, you know, what what abstractly, socially, religiously is 
wrong can also at exactly the same time be full of morality and almost grace actually um so there's like the feeling behind it and also I think the best erotic writing describes one very, very, very specific action, mm. which is metonymic for all the other things that are going to happen. So if, you, if you're familiar with that bit, then you're like, well, I can well imagine all of the other things that follow. What I particularly enjoyed about it was the fact that that, that particular act of, of being... Is there another word for being fingered that's not uh, fingered? Digitally entered? I mean, yeah. they're, they're all dry words. I think I'm going to go with fingered. And <laughs> it feels like such something that's so from... Um, like the teenage years or whatever, that as an adult woman, an adult pair, it feels sort of surprising yeah, yeah. and even more charged because it feels like it's a memory yeah. and it's something that, does it count? How serious is this? And there's really? also, there's a real, there's a really important political reason behind the way I describe that sex act and um, like tasting her mm. on on his hand is because so often sex acts in fiction are portrayed as a woman capitulating to a man and you know we're kind of programmed to find that very erotic and in many ways it is extremely erotic that kind of like feeling of reluctance and being kind of like overcoming your own best instincts or your dislike for somebody or your your moralities it's kind of very persuasive and submission, isn't yeah it? but I particularly in that relationship didn't want to write that and it was very important to me to show that it was equal so that last time they had an equal share was really important and the way that you show a woman is as desiring as a man is is to show that she's wet so there had to be a sex act described that would demonstrate the fact that she was extremely aroused so it had to be that and also the lack of shame as well mm. of of tasting your own lubricant yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think there's a real power in demonstrating men having a flavor of the woman, yeah. both either on their lips or in their mouth, you know, someone uh, fingering someone and then actually tasting the, uh, you know, the, the lubricant, you know, yeah. or the secretions. God, Alan, choose a nice word. Uh, what, what <laughs> well, we there do? are any Juices. Juices. Sex yeah, juices. Even that makes <laughs> yeah, it sound yeah. like a crushed there's, fruit. There's, there's hardly anything that sits in between like the medical and the sniggery. And that's the really big challenge as a writer is how do you be absolutely specific so everybody knows what's going on without either killing all kind of desire in the reader by saying lubricant uh, or or making it sound like your children and saying juices and this is when bad writing or like gets bad or ridiculous like high high poetry yeah, yeah, yeah. like too Honey. much yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the nectar of her yeah, fruits yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you're interested but I, I have a poem here uh, by Hannah Sullivan which I think really works because of that thing of the of managing to be completely specific mm. so totally totally particular to the sex that she's describing in a way that makes everyone reading it going yeah that's a thing that's like an incident that happens and then suddenly you're kind of triggered in kind of remembrances of all these other things so um, she's just describing being fucked basically mm. and she says and now you are moving faster together beating out time until he slams you hard into the bedstead and you knock your collarbone a deep retarded wave of pain then the surrender as you start to come and squeeze against him while he pulls you backwards easily so it's it, there's nothing in that that is either very high language or particularly filthy language but the description of slamming hard against the bedstead so you knock your collarbone and it really hurts mm. and then that triggering like the surrender and the annihilation of an orgasm is like the kind of ridiculousness and awkwardness of sex 
which we all know about, um, and at the same time, the kind of the un the, the, the little death that we all recognise as well. It's an it's an extraordinary poem. It's an amazing way of getting you uh, to, to physically feel something right in the middle of the poem as yeah. well. That you are shocked by the pain of the bedstead. That you yeah. can feel the pain in the in your collarbone, which kind of immediately gets you then into thinking yeah. about what that next pleasure exactly. might feel like. Yeah. it's pretty clever. That way. It's really clever. It's a really good. I'll, I'll send you the whole thing. That's yeah. um, the least explicit standard. <laughs> really? What I sometimes don't hear mentioned so much is the aftermath of sex. So you've had sex, you've both, one hopes, orgasmed, and you're in that incredibly vulnerable place. And particularly if it's early on in a relationship or in a transgressive relationship where this was the start of an affair, perhaps. It, that vulnerability, that uncertainty, the, rec the dawning realisation that you've done this thing, yeah. which in the blinkers go up often when you're very sexually aroused. Yeah, you know, you yeah. block off that rational part of your brain. Then the blinkers come down, don't they? And you think, what have I done? Or actually still swimming in the warmth of yeah. what you've done. Yeah, there's um, one of the books that I was thinking about on while I was sort of in the cab on the way over is by Grand Central Station, I Sat Down and Wept by Elizabeth Smart. Mm. So Elizabeth Smart was a poet and she wrote this book that's basically an extended kind of shriek of anguish and despair after she had an affair with George Barker. And she adored George Barker's wife. So this account of their incredibly passionate and transgressive sexual relationship is compromised by the fact that she's in this constant state that you describe where all of her moral judgments and her love for her friend are completely annihilated by her desire for this man and she says you killed me daily and almost explicitly nightly mm. which is such a good way of describing this kind of constant state of torment and some of the stuff is just extraordinary the aftermath stuff. So, you know, she only really alludes to the sex act and then she will describe George Baker's rage his, and he'll call her, you cunt, you bitch. Um, but that, of course, only kind of drives her further on and, you know, it goes on and on and on. And it's, it's a really good kind of aftermath book. And she never recovered, never. And it's all about that primal hindbrain that is so lustful and driven. And then you do have your sort of slightly, well, in my head, you, I've got a very prim <laughs> sort of frontal <laughs> yeah. overset that goes, oh, no, we won't do that, will you? Do you know, I was at an event say? recently and a woman uh, at the Essex Book Festival, a woman in the front row, um, is it... And I said, yes, la lady at the front there, lady at the front, you give her the microphone, yes, what's your question? And she said, um, so where were you, a nun? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. She genuinely believed you were a nun. Genuinely had believed I'd been a nun. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary. And I think it's because I, I am in some ways uh, quite kind of prim in my um, morality in the sense that I'm constantly thinking about how to be good how to what does what does goodness constitute how to be good in this world I'm constantly thinking about the ethics of writing um, about our moral obligations towards each other um, everything from kind of recycling to the fact that I will if I have an ignoble thought about somebody spend hours kind of going over my own failings as a human being trying to work out what to give up for Lent right <laughs> but you cannot give up for Lent something which will in the long run do you good because you're not mortifying your flesh, you're gratifying it, right? So I was like, well, I'm going to have to keep drinking for the 40 days of Lent. Anyway, so I'm constantly preoccupied with this, but on kind of sexual matters, like a, 
a bit of a hippie. So the, the two things are kind of constantly running up against each other, which is why people were so shocked by The Essex Serpent, because it was a book that went on and on about ethics and morality, about social housing, about domestic abuse, about our responsibilities to each other, about how to be good. And then there is an adulterous sex scene in which I refused to castigate the characters. And people don't like it. They come up to me at events and they say, why did that have to happen? Why? Why did you do that? They never say, why did you allow someone to be mutilated with a knife? Why did you allow someone to die alone on a beach? They say, why did those two people make love? Because pleasure and sex is so transgressive still. And if, if people are seen to be having um, joyful sex or those sorts of experiences without being punished, yeah. I think that that is still quite a rare thing in our culture. We want to see people being punished. Absolutely. We want to see that it hasn't worked out or that, if, especially I think women who are having a good time of it or have really claimed their bodies and their sexual experiences, so often then we see that they're raped or that they're murdered. I mean, just think about the absolute fascination and obsession we have with the Jack the Ripper's victims yeah. and the fact that they were prostitutes, for example. Also, what I think is really interesting, and I've been thinking about this a great deal, not least because of the book that I'm working on, which, you know, I think will probably have to be fairly explicit in order to be honest. Um, we are always most angry when people do the things that we're afraid that we're most likely to do ourselves. And I think the reason that blog posts and articles in magazines and readers were so horrified by that scene in The Essex Serpent is because it talked about a kind of universal desire to seek out intimacy, to be shocked by intimacy, to take it to its kind of most logical conclusion and then not suffer the consequences. This is kind of what we all secretly want, I think. And the fact that we cannot, largely speaking, makes people angry when they're presented with the possibility that actually, maybe you could. You know, maybe Will could have sex with Cora in a forest at dusk and then go home to his lady wife and still have a happy marriage. This is not something anyone wants to hear because it strikes at a number of kind of social norms that keep society kind of ticking nicely over. And I had a really long conversation with my husband walking the dog the other day. I'm cursed with a very happy marriage. It's very unfortunate. Um, it's dreadful material for a novelist. I said, monogamy's a scam. And he said, he said, explain further. And I said, I do feel that monogamy is a little bit like the adversarial legal system and democracy, right? It, you know, it's not great. And I wish there was a better way, but unfortunately we haven't come up with anything more satisfactory. You know, I, I do feel it's hard and maybe not ideal, but I'm not sure that the alternatives have ever really brought anyone more contentment. Is that something that you're going to explore in your next book? Yeah, I think so, yeah. There's a love story. Yeah. Um, and there's a transgressive kind of affair in it. I don't like the word affair. I don't like any of those words that are kind of loaded with sort of middle class yeah. morals. It, it feels like it yeah, comes yeah. out of a very specific mouth. Affair. 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 <laughs> <Handbag. laughs> it is. Or the word cheating is like one of my. I hate. I hate it. And I probably hate it for all the reasons that we were saying earlier. That we're most irritated by the things that kind of strike most deeply at our own kind of anxieties. And I, there's something so sort of you know middle class family in Milton Keynes. Oh, she cheated. She never. 
It's horrible. It's just it's horrible. It's funny, actually, if you think I've never thought about this before, the word cheating, is if we're playing a game. Absolutely. And yeah. it's about winning or losing, and you're cheating. You're cheating, at, you're cheating a win if, yes. if, you, if you run off with somebody yeah, else. Yeah. And you're also cheating other people of the dream. You know, the dream is, I suppose, this happily married life. Yes. And what you've done is you've gone outside the lines. Yeah. And that is hugely problematic for some people going, because then... They're, they've tried so hard to stay in their lines and you've just run off and you're on the inside lane and you've overtaken them. It's outrageous. And if you're having more fun and if it's yeah. allowed, yeah. then what does that mean for their relationships yeah, and yeah. their wants? And, and as you say, their potential lustful wishes outside their yeah. marriages. And if you could actually allow for that, what would happen then? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think one of the most sexy things I've read very recently was this series of emails, almost like diary entries really, but there were emails <clears throat> between someone who was interested in spanking and had never had any experience of it. Uh -huh. And it was a record of the, these emails that she'd had with somebody who was an expert in spanking. He was sort of teaching her in these emails, because she was anxious, she's never done it before, but she knew she'd always had this sort of desire. So he would, in each email, talk in detail, very with no superfluous language, very clear, exactly what the transaction would be yeah. or how it would work. And as soon as she stepped over the threshold, who would be in control and how, how that would happen and how they would come up with a safe word. And I read it on the train. And the woman opposite me, I mean, I realised something was going on because she looked at me like like I'd had a stroke or something. Were you dribbling or something? I, I, mean, I think I must have been. <laughs> I honestly, I never really fully understood the phrase fizzy knickers until that point. Like, I was fizzing all the way back down to London from York. Um, it was the most sexy, really? yeah, little selection of letters, really. And I think it was because it was about teaching me, as if I were her, I'd stepped yeah, yeah, into yeah. her body, and I was being taught how something I'd never done before would work. And I think that's something else I really enjoy in literature that um, looks at the erotic. Yeah, it's like a vicarious Absolutely, thing. and a yeah, safe yeah. place yeah, for yeah. me to explore certain things about dominatrix, does, uh, that kind of power play, stuff that I've always maybe fantasised about or thought about but could never really step into. In a way that if I experience it visually through seeing glimpses of porn or that kind of... I say glimpses of porn because I... I just don't watch the stuff. <laughs> I find it um, frightening because I'm looking at the people and I'm thinking about their backstories and I'm thinking about, well, is she all right? Is she okay? Yeah. Uh, what's the setup here? <laughs> Who's directing this? Are they being paid? Is she being probably? paid a living wage? Yeah. But, but reading it feels like a real safe environment to let my imagination go totally, yeah. totally wild, really. Do you, do you ever feel like you've had to write stuff that you just don't have 
the experience of. Oh, very much so. Mm. I mean, I've, I've only ever had one sexual partner. Um, so necessarily the novelist's imagination for writing erotic scenes is exactly the same as writing scenes of open heart surgery in the sense that um, my imagination is very practised and disciplined um, and I'm a big reader and a big watcher and also there's something about um, an erotic life like you were saying with your reading your emails on the train that's you kind of cultivating a rich and various sex life with yourself and with your own kind of psychology and your sense of what turns you on what doesn't and then you have a sex life with your partner which has a whole other kind of um, environment kind of ecosystem so I mean, I am lacking, practically speaking, but I don't find that cripples my imagination or my writing particularly because I think there is something about sexual desire and the experience of sexual desire, either personally or with a partner, um, that is so... Um, it's so easy for us to share and so easy for us to access in the same way that hunger is a universal sensation. So I have never been actually starving, and I doubt either of you two have, but all of us could write a convincing paragraph or two about hunger pains being so savage that you would willingly commit a violent act in order to get food. Mm. And, and all of your readers would understand it. And I think that when it comes to writing sex, my, my knowledge of intimacy and the variousness of design, the particularity of design, the particular particularity of acts is is kind of um, not confined to practice yes does that make sense Ab absolutely and I love what you're saying also that reading erotic literature or literature that has erotic parts to it is cultivating your own sexual desire absolutely. and desire yeah, with, your, yeah. with yourself a sort yeah. of like masturbation mental absolutely, masturbation yeah. and I, I love that I'm quite often saying to people um because um, of all my friends I'm the, I've been married for such a long time for someone of my age and um but quite often people have sort of spoken to me in the past about being very tormented about sort of falling briefly in love with somebody or strongly desiring somebody even though they're very happily married and I use the same phrase over and over which is that you are entitled to a private life and that that's okay you know um, a happy or indeed an unhappy relationship or marriage or whatever is not a shackle on your mind and it's not a shackle on your ability to express intimacy for people or to feel it or you know in the case of artists of any kind to kind of reach out beyond their kind of immediate yes thing. yeah would you ever pull back from writing what you wanted to write because you were frightened that people might think it's about your own yeah, life? Yeah, definitely. Um, and as I'm writing something now which is kind of semi-autobiographical, that is a concern for me. But you cannot... I remember someone saying you have to write as if your parents are dead. I think it's Jeanette Winterson said that. And that's kind of particularly the case if your parents are kind of deeply, deeply conservative. Um, and, you know, I think my mum's fairly horrified by the events in the Essex Serpent. So she would be yet more appalled... Um, by what I'm working on now, but I do feel a kind of ethical duty to write as accurately I, as I can about my experience, whether that's internal or external, and also about everybody else's. So um, I think we all know what it's like to be blindsided by desire. Yeah. It's really consoling to me to read things like by Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept, or the dirty letters of James Joyce or whatever, and to go, oh, it's not just me. Yeah. This is just a kind of 
horrid um, byproduct of the human condition is that you can be minding your own business and then suddenly out of nowhere be helpless for the duration of a film or for a decade. I think that's glorious in lots of ways. When you're experiencing it, it can feel both warming and passionful and um, delightful and all these words with full at the end of it. Um, but it can also feel excoriating and damaging and as if you are morally the worst person in the world. And those judgments are so damaging, I think, in lots, lots of ways, because sometimes they're socially constructed and sometimes they're religious construction. Yeah. And part of that slightly brings me back to you, really, in terms of how potentially your early life, because I think you brought up in a quite religious environment, yeah, and how that's challenging your writing Do you now. Know, there's something, I'm thinking about this a lot. Um, because of what I'm working on, because I'm giving a lecture next week at Lancaster University on my work and will necessarily talk about that. There's something really interesting that's happened to me psychologically in my kind of post-religious state. I think it's fair to say, and Naomi will tell me if it's not true, that I'm fundamentally impossible to shock when it comes to matters of like morality and sex. There is nothing anyone can tell me, bar like acts of kind of illegal depravity, there's nothing anyone can tell me that will make me turn ahead. I know all about all sorts of transgressive affairs and menage a trois and all of these things, and I just, I have, I have no condemnation towards any of it at all, ever. And in a weird way, this is like the tossed coin of original sin, right? Bear with me. If you were brought up to believe that everyone is born in sin and equally capable of wicked acts, when you grow out of that kind of doctrine, what I have been left with is a belief that we are all equal in being subject to desire, subject to shame, subject to transgression, and equally able to overcome it, to find grace, to find redemption, however we kind of access that. And I think that kind of comes through in my in my writing definitely well there's um, great um i think there's great tenderness and compassion for your characters uh, and it, and it's kind of like a i don't know there's a, there's a psychological astuteness isn't there of looking where they've come from and where they're going and their moral battles along their journey so it doesn't so. feel like stuff that's out of the blue or yeah oh that's really nice to hear do you ever get frightened about writing, like we were saying earlier, that there's a lack of language sometimes for, for rude bits, again, yeah, lack yeah. of language. Either it's medical or it's, um, it's cringy laughable, yeah. or it's laughable. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, you ever, do you ever get worried, worried about that? Yeah, like, how, how am I going to do it? Um, and so this is where it comes down to this idea of being very specific. So um, the question of metonymy, picking one tiny thing that can stand for the whole, is what metonymy is, which I'm sure you both knew. Um, so, no, 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 I have got a clue. Describing one act very specifically and explicitly in actually quite frank and straightforward language yeah. and trusting that that can be metonymic for the entire kind of experience, I think, is what I do. Yeah. And so um, when I'm the, the sex scenes that I'm pondering now will both hinge, but in, this, in the same way that the one in The Essex Serpent does, on a very, very frank description of one small thing, yeah. which facilitates a kind of opening out of, of all of the other things that can happen. And I don't know what turns other people on, but in a way, that's not the point. The point is not to turn people on. I, hopefully they will be, because it's moving the reader in the same way that I would hope they would be terrified by Melmoth, or kind of shocked by, by other events. But it's not the primary thing, because then that becomes pornographic right. that's what pornography is it has a purpose but what I would be hoping is that it facilitates like a deeper psychological understanding of the characters and ourselves mm. in a way that's also really hot yes well 
talking about specificity, I wanted to read just a little <laughs> clip from what I've got here is the Bad Sex Award 2018 contenders in quotes. But there is this one bit that's very specific, Kismet by Luke Tredgett. Um, I wonder <laughs> what we think of this. Uh, she shuffles her head closer to his cock close enough to smell her own residue. Oh, we didn't think of the word residue. Residue, delightful, yeah. And then takes it in her mouth with the vague idea of cleaning it. Jeff mirrors this gesture by burying his head between her legs and gradually she can feel his cock pumping up with blood one pulse at a time until it is long and hard and filling her wide open mouth. They stay in this position for a long time. Anna sucking and slurping with the same lazy persistence you'd use on a gobstopper or a stick of rock. <laughs> eventually she, I shouldn't be cruel really, but eventually she loses her sense of the context altogether of what she is doing or who she is with or where they are and becomes an empty vessel for what feels like disembodied consciousness. She looks out the window and wonders how the glass feels encased within its wooden frame, etc, etc, etc. I mean, that's quite specific in some ways. Yes. It? But, it <laughs> but I'm bored just like she is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if yeah. you're just looking at how the bloody window glass feels yeah, in its yeah, frame, yeah. she's not actually having experience of a lifetime, is no. she? No. <laughs> There's, um, I'm really interested in the whole idea of the bad sex wars because I think it's a real shame that we live in a world where they're a thing because it would be really nice to think that bad writing about sex is no worse and no more worthy of mockery than bad writing about anything else. That's just mm. bad writing. Mm. It's just we're British, so it's really easy to kind of hook it onto something. And, and it would be, I would dearly love to spend a solid hour kind of deconstructing quite why that's so terrible and so ineffective. And part of it is because of how phallocentric it is and because he has the, the gall to attempt to write a sex scene from the point of view of a woman whilst actually focusing on how big and hard and long this prick is getting in her mouth. I mean, it's just, if you compare that to the, uh, the Hannah Sullivan poem, mm. which is so embedded in this kind of inexorable kind of growth towards an orgasm that like you're kind of, you can feel the, the headboard against your collarbone. Like the, the two don't compare at all. I just wanted to read from the Bad Section Fiction Award, uh, which was given in 2018 to James Frey for Katerina. And the way that this piece has been written um, almost makes me feel like it's a series of thoughts in the head in real time, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. So blinding, breathless, shaking, overwhelming, exploding, white. God, I come inside her, my cock throbbing, we're both moaning, eyes, hearts, souls, bodies, one. One, white, God, come, come, come. I close my eyes, let out my breath, come. I lean against her, both breathing hard, I'm still inside her, smiling. She takes my hands, lifts them and places them around her body. She puts her arms around me. We stay still and breathe, hard inside her, tight and warm and wet around me. We breathe. She gently pushes me away. We look into each other's eyes. She smiles. Now, part of me wants to laugh. And the other part of me actually can feel those thoughts yeah, yeah. potentially being in my mind. The sense of the pulsing, you know, as your pelvic floor flings itself about and your prostate squeezes, those jets going, you know, of, of, of cum coming out of you. Does it feel quite sort of realistic, rhythmic, masculine experience? There is a sort of metronomic quality to it that replicates kind of the the fact that when you're when you're when your genitals are squeezing there's very little thought going into your head and then in between the pulses there's almost the fact you can breathe for a second yeah. 
and then there's another pulse. And it's your mind almost switching off and on, off and on, off and on. Mm. Um, and that's what sort of weirdly spoke to me in that. And perhaps that's maybe just being a guy or, you know, uh, that's my experience of Sons and I don't think feels. I've ever heard a, a man describe the specifics of a male orgasm like that. And that's really amazing because it's quite, it's not the same as like what I would experience, which is like a, a constant kind of um, reaching for something and you don't quite know how long it's, and, and you're like, oh, it's still, no, no, fucking hell. And then complete obliteration for however long and then like a return to like an aftermath that's not an aftermath because it's all still part of the thing that's happening to you. But th like it's very hard to write that because also you then have to have the confidence to, to describe an orgasm in a way that's not going to have all, every other woman in the world going, fuck me, you're unwell. Because <laughs> that's not what it's like because who knows, you don't sit down and go... What was it like the last time you came, Naomi? Like, it's not a, actually, we do have those kinds of conversations, but gen generally speaking, it's but not men a don't. chat that's had. Men generally do not have any conversation about how they masturbate or how they ejaculate or what it means to them. Um, you know, and I find that really interesting. I mean, in some of my consultations, I actually have to ask my patients, how do you masturbate? Um, and we have a long conversation about how that then replicates the sex act. You know, if you, where, where is that penis going? What do you think would naturally happen with that penis in movement in terms of if you have a foreskin or not, whether that makes any difference or not, if it's in a vagina or a mouth or anus, whether that makes a particular difference, um, you know, the level of grip and pressure you're using, and all of these things and how important they are for you to try and, in your masturbation, reflect what happens in sex, mm. to try and keep that wiring similar. Yeah. But equally, I'd never sat down and talked to any of my friends, and I'm generally quite frank with my friends, about what it feels like to ejaculate, to yeah. come. I don't, I don't mention that at all. And the fact that you've reflected back, I've just talked about how I come, <laughs> or, or how, yeah, and how different. I'd never thought about the obliteration that women might get and how long that might last. Mm. I mean, I was just told by Laura Dodsworth, a previous um, a guest, about how multiple orgasms were such a wonderful thing and that you can float yeah, on this like, yeah. oscillating glaze yeah, of pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> and I was sat there going, Fuck me, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it, it is, it is. <laughs> but, there, but there is something about that toe curling. That oh, oh, okay. Okay, fine. <laughs> Here we are. Go. Yeah, there we go. But I don't know if it's the writer in, in me, but I, I feel sorry for my all my previous partners because after they <laughs> orgasm, I have often gone... What, what did that feel like? What was that like? Think, yeah. Could you describe that? What was it? What Could was you it? write it down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, they might just say, oh, it was, um, it was delicious. It was right. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. Or, or it was, um, it was sparky. But the different adjectives to, to describe that particular, it's such private, internal, individual experience. And, and it is so, um, <laughs> I was going to say lonely, but really it is, even if you can be coming together or, you know, Many people are having an orgasm. You, you ultimately, your orgasm can only be experienced by you, and I find that such a peculiarly individual, cut-off kind of thing. Like, how can we share yeah. that experience? It's like how I imagine, like, color. You know, when you see, I see that pale blue on my glass. Do you see that pale blue? Is that the same pale blue as I'm seeing? I want to have a shared ex internal experience yeah. and, I, and I feel like literature allows me a window into doing that and to go yes I know that feeling what you're describing you're you're giving me that feeling and um yeah. and I think people are incredibly thirsty for it as well I um 
the other subject that I've written about a lot recently is pain, um, because I had the misfortune to uh, um, suffer very great pain for quite a long time. And I wrote a, lo a long article for The Guardian about writing on drugs and on in pain. And um, I'm still slightly traumatised. I can now talk about it without crying, you'll be pleased to hear. Better for the podcast if I don't sob at this point. Anyway, after this, after this essay came out... The response that I had was quite extraordinary from people who had suffered severe lasting pain writing to me and saying nobody has ever described it correctly until they read my article. And there were two or three people who had suffered very similar injuries and very similar levels of severe pain. And they had printed off the article and sent it to their family members to say, I could never explain to you what it was like. This is what it was like. And their family had begun to treat them differently because someone had been able to articulate it. And finding language for a very internal physical experience for which there is no objective yardstick there's no measure you can you know you can say rate your orgasm one out of ten rate your agony one out of ten you may fully believe that it was a ten or an eight or a two but you have no idea what other people what what scale they're using or what you have yet to experience or what you've yet to experience yeah so you could say you know i i, I genuinely believe i've suffered the worst pain that a human body is capable of accommodating but i might go out and get flattened by a truck and then nobody can bring me morphine for three days and mm. then we'll really find out won't we <laughs> um and it's the same with describing sexual experience i think isn't it like we struggle to find the language and if you can it achieves this incredible kind of intimacy with your reader because they've gone, oh, yes, exactly. But, but that's tough, isn't it? Because if everyone's not experiencing pleasure in the same way, and there are, I, I'm, I'm told, there are some women when they orgasm, it feels like a sigh. Or, for example, they feel tearful. It doesn't no. actually necessarily translate as pleasure. Or it's so intense that actually the extent of feeling is too much. So actually you almost avoid it. Yes, yeah. Or all of them, or, or all, all of those. Of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I have experienced a range uh, yeah. of it. But it makes me think of the power of literature and art to connect, yes. to reach out and to feel connected to people, even if maybe that particular experience is not necessarily within your realm of experience yet. There may be elements of it that speak to you or that you feel that you understand or that you've had. Those moments when you're re reading a book and going, oh, it's not just me. <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. are the most magic are the most magical yes. moments and the most powerful form of literature and that in eroticism is some of the most powerful because there's so much taboo about certain experiences because we don't necessarily sit down and talk about exactly how our orgasm feels all the time it's it's a nice way of placing yourself in the world yes um I've got um some James Joyce here oh yeah which I want to know why this works. Yeah. So James Joyce, as you probably know, wrote filthy letters to his wife, Nora Barnacle, while they were separated. No, I didn't know that. And they are the most astonishing erotica I have ever read because they're unbelievably intimate because they're all addressed to his little fuckbird, which is what he called Nora. Wow. And in order to kind of try and get her to be faithful while they're apart from each other, he writes her these extraordinary reminiscences of their sex lives. And they're just amazing. So he describes fucking her while she's farting and saying like, like how, wow. how glorious that is. And, and it just describes like the, the freeness of their libido and their trust in each other that he was able to say that that happened and to say it in this kind of joyful way. So it's, it should be absurd and it's absolutely not. And my favourite bit is when he remembers 
having sex with her and he wasn't hard mm. and her response to it, which is just extraordinary. So he says, um, it was your lips too which first uttered an obscene word. I remember well that night in bed in Polar, tired of lying under a man. One night you tore off your chemise violently and began to ride me up and down. Perhaps the horn I had was not big enough for you, for I remember that you bent down to my face and murmured tenderly, fuck up, love. Fuck up, love. Wow. Isn't that incredible? That's brilliant. It's just extraordinary. I need to get hold of these letters. I'll send them to you. They're so, so good. And like that fuck up, love. You just, just this like plump woman going, go on, just, just on. a bit, up a bit more. <laughs> and then how amazing that was. And it's so sexy yeah. and so specific and so intimate that you think, you know, I mean, we shouldn't be reading it really. Mm. Um, well, it's the intimacy that I think is so sexy about it, actually. Yeah. And that, that divide, that, line, that blurry line between what intimacy is and just what sort of sexual desire is. And when yes. the two combine, yeah, yeah. that's the and the, stuff. and the complete lack of embarrassment, yeah. which is one of the things that that is so rarely written about that actually by the time you've got your clothes off and you're kind of slightly maddened with desire to do this in, this insane, undignified, untidy thing, <laughs> you know. The, it's so um, messy. It's so messy and it's so ludicrous and yet you're kind of desperate to do it. That the, the boundaries of like the noises that flesh makes um, and the excretions and the smells, they just, just don't, they don't matter and they're rather joyful and it is funny actually yeah. at times. And um, there's, there's so much in those letters that really get to that kind of idea of, um, of what intimacy really means. After Me Comes the Flood, The Essex Serpent and Melmoth are all available to buy from any good bookstores and they have excellent covers with beautiful foil on. <laughs> Very nice on your bookshelf. Gorgeous. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoyed this, you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help other people find us. Go on, give us five stars. <laughs> Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. And Sam Smith for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on intimacy and the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and, of course, a pleasure. pleasure. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 